Alright, welcome to the Medicine Podcast. This is Dr. Christopher Hernandez, your host, and today we're going to be discussing the coronavirus that has paralyzed the planet. A few notes here at the outset. First, a reminder that this podcast is for medical professionals, so I'm going to go into more detail about treatment and management in the hospital than the layman needs to know or probably even should know. Second, a reminder that what we know about this virus and this pandemic is changing all the time. So I can only promise you that the information presented here is up to date as of Sunday, March 15th, 2020. I'm going to try to focus on things that are less likely to change, so I won't be talking about how many cases there are in particular locations or anything transient like that. I'll try to stick to what is known and relatively unlikely to change. If I learn that anything in here is incorrect or out of date, if I have time, I will try to edit the episode accordingly, as well as the date I just mentioned here in the intro, so you'll know if there's been an update. Lastly, I'll just remind listeners that most podcasting platforms do allow you to speed up or slow down the podcast, so if I'm talking too slowly or too quickly for you, there's always that option. Alright, let's get started. As medical professionals, maybe the first thing we should do is get our terminology straight. Even if we aren't all using the correct terminology in practice, we should still know what it is. A lot of people are just referring to the virus currently causing a pandemic as the coronavirus, but of course, the word coronavirus actually refers to a group of viruses, of which this new virus is just the latest to appear. So what is this new virus actually called? At first, it was provisionally named 2019 novel coronavirus, or 2019-NCOV. Such a name is often given when a novel virus first appears before its ultimate significance is known. But this virus has now proven to be quite significant and has been given the official designation by the International Committee on Taxonomy of Viruses of Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome Coronavirus 2. Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome Coronavirus 2 or SARS coronavirus 2. That's quite a mouthful to say and would take a long time to write out, but there's an official contraction that's a lot easier to write. SARS-CoV-2. SARS-CoV-2. If you're looking for the quickest way to refer to the virus, simply calling it SARS virus 2 might be your best option, though I think saying SARS-CoV-2 is just as good. Okay, so that's the name of the virus. Now you have to get straight the name of the disease that the virus causes. The disease, fully written out, is named Coronavirus Disease 2019. The year is literally part of the name of the disease. The abbreviation for that is COVID-19, with COVID in all caps. So SARS virus 2 causes COVID-19, and there is currently a pandemic of COVID-19 around the world. Okay. That part's boring, but important. Now let's take a minute to discuss how this all started, because patients may ask you that kind of question. Then we can get into the details of what is known so far about diagnosis and treatment. The current outbreak was first identified, as everyone knows by now, in Wuhan, China. Wuhan is the capital of, and the largest city in, Hubei, one of the landlocked provinces in central China. In Wuhan, there are many live animal markets, and many of the early cases of COVID-19 were seen in workers from these animal markets. The current thinking, based on the virus's genetic similarities to other viruses, is that the disease originated in bats, 
then leapt to some sort of intermediary animal host. Leading candidates include pigs, civets, and pangolins. And then, at an animal market in Wuhan, China, leapt again from one of these intermediary hosts to humans. I don't think much of that is definitively proven just yet, but it wouldn't be surprising if bats were confirmed to be the original source of the virus, as many other pandemics have been traced to bats, including the closely related viruses of Ebola and the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, or MERS. And if you don't know, civets are furry nocturnal mammals found in Asia and Africa, and pangolins are anteater-shaped mammals with large scales over their entire bodies. My understanding is that both animals are sold while still alive at these Chinese meat markets. Anyway, the virus may have jumped from bats to some intermediary host like pigs, pangolins, or civets, and then to us, just like the original SARS coronavirus did in 2003, and MERS did more around 2012. And that's all I'm going to say about that. There has been some press about Chinese meat markets closing down and the Chinese potentially banning live meat markets for good, but we'll have to see what happens once this all blows over. All right. Let's move on. The epidemiology of this disease is changing so rapidly that I won't really go into it. Obviously, Italy and South Korea and Iran and China have been particularly affected, but by now it's clearly spreading just about everywhere. Johns Hopkins has a popular interactive map tracking the cases, which you can easily find by googling Johns Hopkins coronavirus map or something like that. I think the New York Times map is also quite nice, so I refer you to those to see the latest epidemiologic data. I'll just comment on the incubation period, which is defined as the time between exposure and the onset of the first symptoms. For SARS-CoV-2, this is typically cited as 4 to 5 days on average, with a range of anywhere from 1 to 14 days. The JAMA Viewpoint article from February 28th suggests that the incubation period could actually be as long as 24 days, which would have significant implications for quarantining, so that's something to keep an eye on. Alright, let's go ahead and discuss what is known about transmission. As I already mentioned, it's thought that the virus was initially transmitted from animals to humans in Wuhan. But since then, human-to-human -human transmission has been the problem. Transmission is thought to occur primarily via large droplets produced when an infected person coughs or sneezes. If these droplets hit another person's mucous membranes, infection can occur. That's large droplet transmission, and such transmission is restricted to a narrow radius, most sources say about 2 meters or 6 feet, before the droplets are pulled to the ground by gravity. The big question appears to be to what extent airborne transmission is possible with this new coronavirus that I will be calling SARS virus 2 or SARS CoV 2. As far as I can tell, whether airborne transmission really occurs has not been definitively established one way or the other, but there's a lot of concern that aerosol generating procedures might cause the virus to be transmissible over relatively long distances. These aerosol generating procedures are essentially just anything that might launch tiny droplets into the Air. A standard list of them will typically include invasive procedures like intubation and bronchoscopy, various modes of ventilation such as non-invasive ventilation or bag mask ventilation, and CPR. It's not yet proven, but it would seem to make intuitive sense that such procedures may put healthcare providers at greater risk. And for this reason, many sources, including the CDC, are recommending that the very best protective equipment, such as respirators, be reserved for such procedures. Alright, the last thing I'll say about transmission is that contact transmission is likely to also be possible. If you touch a surface with live virus and then touch your face or your mouth, infection is possible. The virus doesn't survive indefinitely in the environment, but a recently published review of coronaviruses states that similar viruses like SARS-1 and MERS can persist on inanimate objects like glass, metal, or plastic for up to nine days. 
This is why it's so important to wash your hands often and thoroughly, not just with hand sanitizer, but also with soap and water, and to make sure you learn to don and doff personal protective equipment properly. It's not just about the masks. It's about the gowns and the gloves and the goggles as well. Protect your eyes. It's also about decontaminating surfaces, so hopefully your hospital will be aggressive about that and will be using the proper kinds of disinfectant. All right. The last thing I'll say about transmission is that the virus has been found in stool and blood, so we'll have to stay tuned to see if further modes of transmission become a concern, especially fecal-oral. And there's also a concern that asymptomatic transmission may be possible, so that's potentially a huge containment problem. In short, we should all be watching the research on this virus's transmission very carefully. Alright, I've been hearing about a certain statistic often are not, written as capital R, subscript zero, so I feel I should at least mention what it is and why it's considered important. R not is also called the reproductive number, and it's used in infectious disease epidemiology to describe the rate at which secondary infections are expected to occur for a given disease. In other words, to describe its infectiousness. Measles, for example, one of the most infectious diseases of all time, has an R not of about 15, meaning that for every single case of the disease, in the absence of other interventions, about 15 more cases would be expected. The r naught for SARS virus 2 is still preliminary, but is being estimated to be roughly in the 2 to 3 range. I'm not sure how helpful this number really is. We already know the virus is spreading, and continuing to actively monitor the epidemiology will tell us how aggressively it's spreading, but it's at least good to know what r naught is and why ID docs talk about it. The virus's r naught is definitely high enough to cause a pandemic, which is exactly what we're seeing. Okay, let's move on to the actual clinical presentation for this disease, COVID-19, caused by SARS-CoV-2. The key symptoms I keep hearing mentioned as screening criteria are three in number, fever, dry cough, and shortness of breath, or dyspnea. These are the key symptoms, with cough and fever seeming to be the more sensitive, with each seen at least 70 to 80% of the time, according to most published data. A smaller percentage of patients will experience myalgias, headache, increased sputum production, sore throat, nausea, diarrhea. I've actually heard reports of some patients presenting with only GI symptoms like diarrhea, leading to them not being properly quarantined before ultimately being diagnosed with COVID-19. I don't know what the solution to that is exactly, but I think cases like that are the exception. Usually you'll see some combination of cough, fever, fatigue, and dyspnea. Okay, let's quickly discuss lab values. The utility of labs here seems somewhat dubious to me since we have a PCR-based test for the presence of actual virus, and reported labs have been somewhat inconsistent. But what I am seeing a lot is that a normal white count with lymphopenia, or a reduced proportion of lymphocytes in the differential, is quite common. Fairly mild liver enzyme elevations are also quite common, though severe liver disease or fulminant hepatitis is rare. A mild AKI is often seen, Pro-cal is often initially low or normal, so if it is elevated or if it later becomes elevated during the patient's hospital stay, that may be useful and may suggest a bacterial superinfection. Inflammatory markers like CRP may increase over time and may correlate with disease severity, etc. Some other labs have been discussed. Some patients may have an elevated D-dimer, for instance, which might correlate with disease course. But as I mentioned, the data seems rather mixed to me, so for now I'll just leave the basic labs discussion at that. 
What may be more important is how to actually test for this disease. The CDC recommends swabbing both the nasopharynx and the oropharynx. Our hospital is developing a system where these swabs will first be tested for the flu. If the influenza test is negative, those same swabs will reflex to a respiratory viral panel. And then, if the viral panel is also negative, the test will reflex, finally, to a test for SARS-CoV-2. Here's an important point. These standard respiratory viral panels will typically feature something labeled coronavirus, but these viral panels obviously pre-existed the new coronavirus, and as such, they are not designed to test for the new coronavirus. If the respiratory viral panel comes back positive for coronavirus, that refers to one of the four known coronaviruses that have been considered to cause the common cold, though I'm now seeing some speculation that they may cause disease a little more severe than that. But these older known coronaviruses are not SARS-CoV-2. They are not the cause of COVID-19. So please don't be confused if you see that result. It's also important to realize that although the PCR-based test for SARS-CoV-2 is very good, it isn't perfect, and a negative test does not completely rule out the disease if clinical suspicion is high. In such cases, it may be wise to sample the patient again at a later point. There are also other ways to obtain samples, tracheal aspirates, say, or via bronchoalveolar lavage, which shouldn't be done just for the sake of obtaining a sample, but might have to be done, in theory, for some other reason. These methodologies can also provide samples suitable for PCR-based testing. Okay, let's talk briefly about imaging, because imaging can definitely help confirm the diagnosis. In COVID-19, on both x-ray and CT scan, the typical findings are bilateral infiltrates. What you see can obviously vary tremendously from case to case, from nearly nothing to full-blown whiteout of both lungs, that is, severe ARDS. On CT, the infiltrates are typically so-called ground glass opacities, meaning the underlying structures, bronchial structures, pulmonary vessels can still be seen. I've seen some sources say that x-rays are basically useless, while CTs are incredibly diagnostic, and other sources saying that both modalities are only modestly helpful, so I'm not going to take a strong stance about that right now. It does seem that if the patient has respiratory symptoms, the CT scan has good sensitivity, and the more severe the symptoms, the higher the sensitivity. I'll also point out once again that what you're looking for are infiltrates. What you do not expect to see are masses or cavitation or pleural effusions or lymphadenopathy. So if you see something like that, there may be something else going on. It's also worth appreciating that every bilateral infiltrate begins at least briefly as a unilateral infiltrate. So you could see something focal and unilateral at first before it quickly becomes bilateral. And some studies suggest that later in the disease course, the infiltrates more often consolidate where perhaps you would not see underlying structures so well. But I think the main takeaway here is bilateral infiltrates that are usually ground glass opacities on CT scan. To what extent CTs are needed or helpful after an x-ray, I will leave it to other people to determine. All right, let's finally get into the actual disease course for this virus, which I think is going to be the subject of the most interest to medical providers who may find themselves actually treating these patients in the hospital, including the sickest ones that may end up in the ICU. I will once again issue the disclaimer that everything we know about this virus is evolving as more data becomes available, and that definitely includes what to expect in the hospital. But here are some facts that seem pretty clear. Remember this virus is literally named SARS, Severe acute respiratory distress is the feared complication. The vast majority of people, especially if they are relatively young, experience only mild respiratory distress and will survive this illness just fine staying at home. And that indeed is the recommendation for people with mild symptoms. Self-quarantine at home, 
stay hydrated, treat symptoms as you would with any cold, etc. However, some percentage of patients are going to get sick enough that they do require hospitalization. And what I've been seeing from many sources is that their respiratory status can decline quickly and unpredictably. They may require nothing more than nasal cannula oxygen for a few days before recovering. They may sharply decline and require intubation on hospital day two. They may seem to be recovering, but then sharply decline and require intubation on hospital day six or day eight or even later. So I think that variability and unpredictability is an important thing to be aware of. According to University of Louisville ID doc Forrest Arnold, who has a nice, though already somewhat out-of-date lecture up on YouTube, and who basically amalgamated the results of the research published at the time, the average time from the onset of symptoms to dyspnea was about six days, with hospital admission two days later, and the development of ARDS occurring around that time as well, that is to say, eight days or so from the onset of symptoms. These are just averages, of course, and they were based mostly on the Chinese data. Ideally, any ARDS patient would receive care in the ICU, but the extent to which that happens is, of course, going to depend on bed availability, which is partly why we all should try to flatten the curve. Okay, so clearly respiratory distress is an important part of the disease course. What else can you expect to see? It looks like the fever, though it can be intermittent, can last quite a while, 10 days or more, so that's another thing to watch for. True multi-organ system failure, thankfully, seems to be seldom seen. The last thing I'll say about disease course is based on anecdotal data, so please take it with a grain of salt, but there's an interesting post circulating on the internet, supposedly from a Washington State-based physician, who says that at their hospital, they're often seeing the sudden development of cardiomyopathy in patients, often late in the disease course when the patient has otherwise seemed to be recovering. The patient, who prior had never had any pressure requirements, will quickly go into cardiogenic shock and ultimately develop an ACLS arrhythmia, with some hospitals reporting more VTAC or VFib and others reporting more PEA or asystole. So there's speculation that there may be a viral cardiomyopathy component to the disease, but I have not seen a lot of information about this yet, so again, take that with a grain of salt. But, you know, some of these patients do die, and they have to die somehow, so this may be sometimes how they die. Okay, so let's say you have a patient who's too sick to get through COVID-19 at home and has been admitted to the hospital. You're their healthcare provider. What can you actually do? Since no vaccines are yet available and no disease-specific treatments are yet proven, the focus right now is on supportive care. That means giving oxygen and escalating your oxygen delivery modality as needed, treating symptoms, replacing electrolytes as needed, giving fluids as needed. If the patient does ultimately require intubation, protocols generally suggest standard ARDS parameters, that is to say, low tidal volumes, high PEEP, keep those alveoli open. Proning has been suggested as potentially helpful as well. If they end up needing pressor support, you put them on pressors. If they develop a bacterial superinfection, a pneumonia, or a bacteremia, or anything else, you treat that. Some small percentage of critically ill patients have developed kidney failure, so would need CRRT. The most severe cases may require extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, or ECMO. All these interventions basically represent what we are already trained to do for very sick patients. The point, I guess, is just to realize that these are the sorts of interventions that may well be needed for our sickest COVID-19 patients. 
As far as what not to do, so far I have generally seen that giving steroids is not advised, unless specifically otherwise indicated, for example for a COPD exacerbation, and aerosolization procedures, as I briefly discussed above, are strongly discouraged unless absolutely necessary. For instance, if a patient requires mechanical ventilation, there's no way to avoid the aerosolization that comes with the process of intubation, so you just have to deal with that. But on the other hand, something like bag mask ventilation or positive pressure ventilation should never really have to be done because many people are saying that if high flow nasal cannula fails, you might as well proceed directly to intubation, especially considering the cases of rapid and unpredictable respiratory decline that have been reported. So I imagine that every hospital is going to have its own algorithm for this, but please familiarize yourself with yours and be conscientious about not increasing the risk of transmission unless you have to. Alright, I think we're almost done here. I don't want to spend a lot of time on the various drugs that are being researched as potential treatments for COVID-19, because anything I say will quickly become obsolete as the data is rolled out in the coming months. Suffice to say that there are several drugs being studied. The Gilead antiviral drug Remdesivir is getting attention because it was used on one of the first US cases and appeared to have a benefit. We'll just have to see how the actual clinical trials pan out. Some HIV drugs are being looked at as well, like lopinavir slash ritonavir. Chloroquine, the anti-malarial drug, is being researched since it affects the ACE2 receptor that the virus is known to bind. A few more drugs like interferon beta and favilavir are being looked at as well. We'll just have to see. And I haven't heard much about any vaccines just yet, but there are at least 11 vaccine candidates in development. Hopefully one of those will prove effective and come out one day many months from now. God only knows to what extent the pandemic will still be raging at that time. Okay, I think I'm going to wrap up this episode here. I just have a few more quick bullets that I didn't quite find a way to weave into the above, but don't want to end the episode without mentioning. One is that there appears to be more than one strain of this new coronavirus out there, so the clinical pattern in China may not exactly match the clinical pattern in Italy or in Iran or here in the US, so that's certainly something to keep an eye on. I also feel like for completeness's sake, I should say a few words about what the virus actually looks like. It's basically just a single strand of RNA enveloped in a spherical lipid membrane heavily studded with various proteins. And on this sphere are so-called spike proteins that stick out everywhere, making it look sort of like a crown on electron micrograph and giving coronavirus its name. Corona means crown in Latin. These spikes help the virus attach to human cells and one of these vaccines in development is reportedly targeting these spike proteins in some way. Lastly, I feel I may as well make a quick comment on the scale of this pandemic. The most closely related virus to this virus is the first SARS virus, which has recently been renamed SARS virus 1. In total, there were about 8,000 cases of SARS virus 1 and 800 deaths for a mortality rate of about 10%. That was back in 2003. In the current pandemic, we've already exceeded 150,000 cases with over 5,000 deaths. So although the fatality rate is clearly lower, this is clearly a much, much larger pandemic. All right, that's a wrap. Stay safe, everyone. Please do try your best to practice social distancing and to self-quarantine and to help flatten the curve and all that. Please do wash your hands frequently. If you feel anything in this episode is out of date or incorrect or misleading, please do email me at themedicinepodcast at gmail.com. If you like the show, please leave a rating or a review, or better yet, send a link to the podcast to a friend. All right then, see you next time.